So good to be with you guys this morning. I'm so glad that we can gather. I'm also glad that it's not 80 degrees today like it was supposed to be. So hopefully you're staying cool this morning. Um, just want to mention the fact that there's probably a little over 100 households represented here this morning outside in our parking lot. There's also 100 families, uh, households represented online. So we give the, the households that are watching online some love this morning. <clears throat> awesome. We got a lot to get through today, and we don't have a lot of time, so I'm just going to jump right in this morning. Uh, the title of our sermon today is The Gospel at Work, and this morning I'm going to be reading and teaching from the New Living Translation. This is Paul writing to the church in Ephesus. He says, Slaves, obey your earthly masters with deep respect and fear. Serve them sincerely as you would serve Christ. Try not to please them all the time, not just when they are watching you. As slaves of Christ, do the will of God with all your heart. Work with enthusiasm as though you were working for the Lord rather than for people. Remember that the Lord will reward each one of us for the good we do, whether we are slaves or free. Masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Don't threaten them. Remember, you both have the same master in heaven, and he has no favorites. Church, this is God's holy word. Let's pray together. <clears throat> Lord, we desperately need your help this morning with this text to reveal and show us <clears throat> what you are trying to say, Lord. Thank you that your word is a light unto us. It lights the way that we walk our lives, the way that we live out our lives, Lord. And so this morning, I just ask that you would speak through me, God, and that uh, anything that I have to say this morning that is of my own uh, intellect or knowledge and not from you, Lord, would it fall on deaf ears, Lord. But I believe that you have something very specific that you want to say to each of us, something that applies to every single person who is gathered here today in this parking lot, Lord. So we ask that you would speak, uh, that you would anoint my words uh, for the preaching of the word of God and the edification of your church. Uh, we pray everything in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so this morning I want to start by uh, revealing what this passage is not about. This passage is not about the institution of slavery. Okay, as Americans, we often equate the idea of slavery uh, to the race-based slave trade of African men and women at the dawn of our nation. That's what we learned in school. But the Greco-Roman slavery that uh, Paul is addressing in our passage looked a lot different than the slavery that we read about in our American history books. And the, the first differential is that Greco-Roman slavery was largely based on finance and not on race. Okay, think about it this way. There was no uh, chapter 11 bankruptcy uh, back in the ancient Roman world. And so if you went broke, the only option you really had was to sell yourself and or your family into slavery in order to pay off your debt. So it was largely financially based, not necessarily uh, race based. And the second thing that was different is that uh, Greco-Roman slavery was largely voluntary. If you were a criminal or if you were a captured soldier, often those two groups of people would be forced into slavery. But for the most part, um, the, the slaves in the Greco-Roman world looked more like indentured servants than slaves. It, we see that actually in the word that Paul uses for slave in this text. It's this word doulos, which actually means bond servant, somebody who has willingly submitted themselves into, uh, under the authority of another person in service. So 
this kind of slavery was not rooted in a false paradigm of racial superiority or the kidnapping or imprisonment of innocent people. And it's really important that we understand this because we can easily dismiss this verse by thinking that it somehow condones slavery as we understand it as Americans, or we can dismiss this passage by thinking that this verse doesn't apply because we think that uh, slavery is somehow extinct. And neither of those things are true. Uh, The Christian perspective on slavery is actually one of the most liberating and emancipating positions on slavery, certainly of its time. There's actually, uh, in the book of Exodus, there's a law that puts to death any man who would buy and sell another human being. The teachings of Jesus and the early church actually gave unprecedented status to slaves within society and within the church, right? The very fact that Paul is addressing both slave and master in the same breath indicates that both groups were an equal part of the early church. Paul is writing to slaves and masters, but this passage is about much more than a philosophical commentary on the issue of slavery. What Paul is doing in this passage and what he has been doing throughout this section of Ephesians is he's laying out kingdom principles, principles that inform the most important and essential aspects of the Christian life, specifically the relational ones. Right Now, I want us to remember that uh, the first half of Ephesians, chapters 1 through 3, is all about gospel identity, which is who we are in light of what Christ has done. And then the second half, chapters 4 through 6, is all about gospel implications, which is what we do in light of who Christ is and who we are in Christ. And this is by design. It's not a coincidence that Paul sets it up like this. Paul is showing us how our gospel identity informs the most vital aspects of our humanity, the places and spaces where our relationships and what we do with them have the greatest impact. These, three, uh, these are three key areas uh, of relationship that Paul addresses in this section, right? Uh, he talks about the marriage relationship. Dom and Emily taught about that a few weeks ago. Uh, He says, uh, wives, submit to your husbands. Husbands, serve your wives as Christ uh, serves and loves the church. Uh, Last week, we looked at the family relationship, particularly the relationship between parents and children, right? Uh, uh, Children, obey your parents. Parents, bring up your kids in the instruction of the Lord. And this morning, uh, Paul is addressing a third arena of gospel living, which is the workplace, right? Marriage, family, workplace. These are the, one, some of the most essential aspects of our lives even today. And as I mentioned before, uh, contextually speaking, the common workplace of Paul's uh, time was an environment where slaves actually held a variety of responsibilities, both publicly and privately. Everything from mining and agriculture to uh, hairdressing, teaching, uh, accounting even, Some slaves were actually secretaries or even nurses and doctors. Certain slaves actually earned a wage, and some were actually more wealthy than some of the poorer free citizens of Rome. So in one sense, the vocational life of a slave actually might look a lot closer to our modern work climate than we realize. Instead of slaves, we have employees. Instead of masters, we have bosses, managers, executives. And when we talk about the workplace, uh, there's never a shortage of opinions and emotions. And I wanna make mention of the fact this morning that um, we live in a very unprecedented time. And uh, the 
idea of the workplace and of jobs is a very sensitive one right now due to COVID. I'm guessing that in a, a, a place this size, there have been some people here in this room who have actually lost their jobs due to COVID. Some of us despise our jobs. Our job is nothing more than a purposeless means to a paycheck and two days off a week. An endless cycle of meaningless toil and strife that keeps us from defaulting on the mortgage. Our job is mere drudgery. And for those of us who despise our jobs, we wonder if there is something greater. We wonder if there is something more important and more meaningful and more purposeful. And the gospel says, yes, there is. Now, for others, work feels nothing like slavery at all. We love our job. Our job gives us purpose and meaning and a feel, feeling of value and importance and influence. Or perhaps the paycheck that we get from our job affords us certain luxuries in life. It allows us to have that dream home or that dream car. Or it allows us to send our kids to private school. Or it allows us to go on vacations that we want to go on. Our job is everything. And so we work long hours in service to the next project, aiming for the next promotion, trying to prove to ourselves and others that we are worthy of the job that we so love. We worship our work. And for those of us who fall into that pattern of work worship, we wonder if there could ever be anything greater or more important or more meaningful than work. And the gospel says, yes, there is. Because whether you love your job or you loathe your job, you will spend the majority of your lifetime doing it. If you live the average American lifespan, you will spend 90,000 hours of your life at work. That is almost 75% of the time that you are awake, you will spend it at the workplace. And the gospel says that what you do with those 90,000 hours matters. What you do with three quarters of your life matters. The gospel gives us a purpose in work that is greater than the paycheck that we get from work. And there's some of us who need to hear that today. Your spiritual purpose in life does not exist in the space between your nine to five. Your ministry is not confined to a Sunday morning gathering. The gospel is just as potent and powerful on Monday morning as it is on Sunday morning. The gospel gives us purpose that infiltrates every aspect of our lives, and that most certainly includes our nine to five. Now, what is that purpose? What is our purpose in work? Well, to answer that question, we need to go all the way back to the beginning, to the creation story, right? For five days, God is hard at work. He's creating and filling the earth with water and land and every kind of plant and animal. And in the middle of all of that, God makes a beautiful garden and he calls it Eden, which means delight in Hebrew. And on the sixth day, God creates man and woman in his image. We see that in Genesis 1.26. And then look at what God says right after that. Right after God creates man in his image, it says this in Genesis 1.28. It says, Then God blessed them and said, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and govern it. Reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, and all the animals that scurry along the ground. What is God talking about here? He's talking about work. This idea of fruitfulness, bringing forth fruit from the ground, creating something, planting in the ground and bringing forth fruit. This, this idea of multiplication, this creation and expansion, development, growing. 
The idea of governing invokes this idea of bringing order to a world of chaos. This is vocational language that God is using. What he's doing here is he's giving Adam and Eve a job description. And notice that it's actually a blessing. It says, God blessed them and said, go and work. And what we need to understand is that work is fundamentally a good and God-pleasing gift. God gave this job description to Adam and Eve before the fall. I love the way that uh, John Mark Comer describes it in his book, Garden City. It's a phenomenal book if you haven't read it. He says, here's what you have to understand. The garden was dynamic, not static. Put another way, creation was a project, not a product. The garden was designed to go somewhere. God's vision was for the order and artistry and beauty of Eden to spread out over the whole earth. And human was the one entrusted with that job to fill the earth with the garden's reality. God's holy work plan for Adam and Eve was to imitate him by bringing the beauty of the garden into all the earth, to take the raw materials of Eden and build a world out of it. But instead of Eden entering into the world, the world entered into Eden. Sin with its deceits and its corruption and emptiness came into Adam and Eve, forcing them out of the garden into a land that was harsh, difficult, and dead. And what was once good, godly work became tiresome and tedious toil. God says this to Adam in Genesis chapter 3. He says, the ground is cursed because of you. All your life you will struggle to scratch a living from it. It will grow thorns and thistles for you, though you will eat of its grains. By the sweat of your brow, you will have food to eat until you return from the ground from which you were made. For you were made from dust, and to dust you will return. So if your job sucks, if you don't like your job, if it feels like meaningless, tireless, fruitless toil, if your work feels purposeless, then the gospel says that sin is the reason But the gospel also says that your work has been redeemed. The gospel says that Jesus has restored the purpose of your work. Through his death on the cross and resurrection from the dead, Jesus has restored all things unto himself. And that certainly includes the thing that you spend 90,000 hours of your life doing. He has given you a new nature He's given you a new life. Paul would tell the Galatians in Galatians 2, he says, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. So I live in this earthly body by trusting in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. If you have put your faith in Jesus, you are no longer a child of Adam. Jesus, who is the better Adam, has taken up residence in you so that you would no longer live under the curse of Adam. And what this means is that your work, whatever it is that you do, has a divine purpose that has been redeemed by Jesus. This is gospel-centered work. To imitate, to bear the image of God in the work that we do, to allow the divine within us to motivate how we handle the work before us to reveal through our work that there is a garden at hand, a garden full of life and beauty and wonder and redemption and hope and salvation, to image the divine in the thing that we spend the majority of our lives doing. You might be thinking at this point, but I'm just a carpenter. 
I'm just an accountant. I just work at Starbucks. How does that bear the image of the living God? Well, what does a carpenter do? A carpenter takes the raw materials of the earth, wood and metal, and he makes a pleasant space for others to work and live in. Or maybe he builds a piece of furniture that is pleasing to the eye and comfortable to sit in. What does an accountant do? She takes the chaos of transactions and exchanges of goods and services and brings order and reconciliation and balance to them. What about a barista? A barista takes the coffee bean, which has been harvested from the earth, and grinds it up, strains water through it, and then combines it with milk, all to create a delicious and pleasing latte. In fact, the next time that you drink a cup of coffee, I want you to think about what it took for that cup of coffee to get into your hand. Somebody, somebody in, a, in a country where there's volcanoes has planted a coffee cherry tree in a grove. They water it, they, uh, they water it, nurture it. They take the coffee beans, they extract the, coffee be- the cherries from the tree. Coffee comes from cherries, by the way. That's a fun fact for you. Um, they take the, the coffee bean from the cherry, they wash it, they dry it. Then somebody else has to ship that coffee bean halfway across the world to a roaster. That roaster then has to use fancy equipment that has been made by somebody else to perfectly roast your coffee bean. And then that bag of coffee beans has to be given to a barista who grinds it up, strains water through it into a cup that was made by somebody else. All that so you could have your morning cup of coffee. Friends, there is Eden in your cup of joe. There is godly vocational delight in your morning brew. And what we need to understand is that all work is spiritual work. Unless your work is criminal or exploitative of other human beings, then your work is actually spiritual. There is actually a divine, ancient purpose in the work that you do. And we make a grave mistake when we assume that spiritual work is reserved for vocational missionaries. Uh, ministers and missionaries and evangelists. Sadly, this is a paradigm that is so present in our modern church culture, right? Pastor, worship leader, global worker, nonprofit work, those are the spiritual jobs, and my job is not. My job is secular. That's not the gospel. That's actually a lie from the pit of hell. Your job is spiritual. Another way that we err is when we think that the only way that our job can be spiritual is if we treat our job like a mission field and preach the gospel and make disciples at our work. Now, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. That is a call of the Christian. The call of the Christian is to make disciples. But I want to make it crystal clear that we fulfill our spiritual calling in work by doing the best work that we could possibly do in our job, by making the best cup of coffee, by building the best table, by doing the best IT work, by being the best manager or the best boss. And that is exactly what Paul is getting at in our text this morning. He is giving us a gospel-centered approach to our work and our workplace. And what Paul is arguing that more important than what we do for work is how we do our work. There are three ideas that Paul presents. These are three how statements about how the Christian is to conduct his or her work. And although uh, predominantly what Paul is addressing is the slave, uh, in verse 9 Paul says, Masters, treat your slaves in the same way. 
So whether you're a boss or you're an employee, wherever you fall on the totem pole at your job, these words are equally for you. Paul says and communicates that gospel-centered work is to be done with respect and sincerity. I'm going to read verse 5 again, but I'm going to change the language a little bit so it gives us some context. Paul says, Employees, obey your earthly bosses with deep respect and fear. Serve them sincerely as you would serve Christ. With deep respect and fear. Now, there are certain translations that use the phrase fear and trembling. Obey your earthly bosses with fear and trembling. But it's not this kind of like cowering kind of fear. In the Bible, fear and trembling is actually used uh, this way. It's used to describe the anxiety of one who distrusts his ability to meet all requirements, but religiously does his utmost to fulfill his duty. In fact, Paul exhorts the church in Philippi to work out their salvation with fear and trembling. So what does that mean for us? Well, it means that we are called to bring the same reverential heart to the workplace that we experience in the worship service. In other words, you can't stand before God in reverential fear and wonder on Sunday and then stand before your boss in bitterness and entitlement on Monday. That's not the gospel. Now you might be saying, but you don't understand my boss. They're a total jerk. They micromanage everything. They're so self-absorbed. Well, let me tell you, if you think your boss is bad, consider for a moment the bosses of the Bible. Joseph had Pharaoh as his boss, not really the most understanding guy. After all, eventually he would enslave the Jewish race for generation after generation. And yet Joseph continually acted respectfully toward Pharaoh. Why? Because he was angling for a promotion? No, because he loved the Lord. What about Daniel's boss, King Nebuchadnezzar? Maybe the most vain character in the entire Bible. The guy had a 90-foot gold statue uh, erected of himself. Daniel respected him. Even though he didn't compromise his faith, there was always respect that Daniel had for King Nebuchadnezzar. Think about David's boss for a second. King Saul, right? He was a maniac. He plotted to kill David. Like, your, your boss might be bad but your boss has not actively plotted your murder, okay? And what did David do? When he finally had the upper hand on Saul, he showed him mercy, which is a form of respect. As believers, we are to respect our bosses, not because of whether or not they have treated us well, but because Jesus has treated us well. This is why Paul would say at the end of verse five, serve them sincerely as you would serve Christ. Your boss might not deserve it, but Jesus deserves our sincerest and most honest work. Because even though your boss might not have given you that promotion in the office, Jesus sealed your position in the kingdom of heaven. Because even though you might not get that much needed time off, Jesus gives you ultimate rest. Because even though you might not get the raise or bonus that you deserve, Jesus has poured out extravagant love upon your life. That's what it means to work with respect The second idea that Paul presents is that gospel-centered work is done with integrity. In verse 6, Paul exhorts slaves, try to please them all the time, not just when they are watching you. The slaves of Christ do the will of God with all your heart. In 2006, uh, during the NCAA March Madness tournament, 
uh, the developers of the streaming video player introduced a new feature. This feature was called the boss button. It was called the boss button. And here's how it worked. So let's say you're watching the game at your work. You're slacking off. You're watching basketball. You're not doing your job. And then all of a sudden your boss rolls around. Well, all you do is click the boss button. And what it would do is it would instantly change the page to something that looked super important, like a flow chart or a spreadsheet or like a PowerPoint slide. <clears throat> this is funny and a little brilliant too, if I'm being honest, but this is exactly what Paul is talking about. We are called as Christians to the same quality of work, even when the boss isn't watching us, even when the boss's eyeballs aren't on us. Why? Because the Lord's eyes are always on us. Look at what Paul says in verse eight. He says, remember that the Lord will reward each one of us for the good that we do, whether we are slaves or free. I want us to see that God sees the work that you do. God sees the work that you do. And this should be both a comfort to us and a conviction to us. It's a comfort because of the assurance that God sees the little things. God sees the little things that you do. And perhaps maybe at your job, you feel like the things that you do go unnoticed. Things that you do go unrecognized and unseen. I want you to hear today that God sees those things. God sees the little things that you do. God sees when you do the right thing. And it's also a conviction because of the fact that God also sees the moments when we cut corners, when we slack off, when we vent unnecessarily to our coworkers, we fudge the time card a little bit or take that extended bathroom break. C.S. Lewis said that integrity is doing the right thing even when no one is watching. Our integrity at work, doing the right thing, is not motivated by the elevation of self or the advancement of career. It is motivated simply by what Jesus has done for us on the cross. And friends, that matters whether anyone is looking at you or not. The last thing that Paul points out is that gospel-centered work is done with enthusiasm. Verse 7 says, work with enthusiasm as though you were working for the Lord rather than for people. This command in verse 7 is not a call to harder work, but rather a call to higher work. It's a call to remember who we really work for. I love the root of the word enthusiasm. It comes from the Greek phrase uh, enthus, or uh, more broken down, en theos. And that phrase simply means possessed by God. Although you might work for a company, get paid by a company, manage a company, you are not possessed by a company. You are the possession of God. Your boss doesn't own you. The Bible says that you are God's special possession. So work like it. Do your job with excellence, with joy, passion, commitment, and dedication because you belong to God. That is what it means to work with enthusiasm, to work as one who has been possessed by God. <clears throat> Respect, sincerity, integrity, enthusiasm. Why do these things matter so much in the workplace? Because these are the character traits of Jesus. 
Jesus, the Imago Dei, the image of the invisible God. Jesus, the one who, though he was God, did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his privileges. He took the position of a slave, a doulos, and was born as a human being, humbling himself in obedience to God, even to the point of death on a cross. And if our calling is to image and imitate God in the space that takes up 90,000 hours of our life, the way that we work should be a response to what Jesus has done for us. What we do in our jobs should be an overflow of kindness, of grace, mercy, uh, humility, not humiliation, humility, (laughs) dedication and sacrifice that Jesus has shown to us. I want to end this morning with a story that illuminates this in a way that my words could never articulate. Uh, there's a man from our church here. He, he goes to our church, and he worked for a prominent company here in Ventura. And he managed a team of, of two other people with him. And he loved his job. It was a great job. Uh, he was good at his job. His job provided for his family, allowed him to put food on the table. It was an awesome job. And then COVID hit. And upper management announced that uh, a great number of the company's employees would be placed on a three-month furlough without any guarantee that they would be rehired. And it just so happened that uh, one of these employees was on this man's team. And so he prayed, he sought the Lord, and he decided that he would take the furlough he would go on furlough. So his other, this this person on his team, somebody who was actually below him on the org chart could keep their job, could continue to to provide for their family. In a culture of self-promotion, survival of the fittest, he said, I am going to sacrifice for someone else. Why? Because Jesus has sacrificed for me. And fortunately, by the grace and mercy of God, after a few months, he was actually rehired by the same company, you got a bigger team to work with. But the point of that story is not that God worked everything out. The point of the story is that the gospel compelled this man to sacrifice his job in the same way that Jesus sacrificed his life for him. Now, not all of us will find ourselves in that situation. But I have to be honest, when I first heard that story, it convicted me on a very deep level. Because it forced me to reckon with the question, Is the gospel that important to me? Is the gospel that essential to my life that I would even be willing to consider laying down my job for the sake of someone else? And I want us to ask ourselves that same question. How important is the gospel in what you do with the 90,000 hours of your life? How important is the gospel in the thing that takes up 75% of your waking hours? This morning, if you find yourself worn out in work, lacking purpose, or even hating your work, consider this morning the gospel, a reminder of the work that Jesus did on your behalf to restore you and your purpose. And this morning, if you find yourself worshiping your work, striving to prove yourself worthy in the workplace, consider the gospel, which says that you were already worthy because of the work that Jesus did on your behalf. Amen? Lord, I want to pray right now specifically that you would restore purpose in our jobs. For the person who is struggling, for the person who doesn't 
like what they do for work, God, I pray that you would give them fresh, new, divine, gospel-centered purpose in what they do. For the person who is striving in service to their job, worshiping their job, Lord, I pray that you would remind them that we are not defined by what we do. We are defined by what Jesus has done for us. We ask, God, that you would help us this morning. Lord, 75% of our lives, that's a lot. And Lord, we ask that the gospel would infiltrate, that it would penetrate that giant part of our lives. We pray for fresh gospel purpose this morning, fresh gospel unction in our workplaces. Help us, Lord. Help us to look upon the gospel this morning. Help us to look upon what Jesus has done for us as we celebrate that through baptism, as we celebrate that by, with this beautiful demonstration of our death with Christ and being raised to life with him, Lord. Would it remind us of the gospel? And would being reminded of the gospel allow us to work in a gospel-centered way? We worship you, Jesus. We say that everything that we have, including our jobs, you are worthy of it. So we surrender it to you. We ask it in Jesus' name.